Our sermon text today is from Psalms chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, to terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of this earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in his way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Well, I would just like to say that, uh, I'm going to turn that down. Uh, I would just like to say that I am eminently grateful to be able to proclaim God's word to you this morning. Uh, so this is not the first time that I have preached, uh, but this is the first time I have preached here. Uh, usually preaching for me looks like, uh, you know, a pastor that I know is out of town and, uh, and you know, I have some connection with him. And so I come in and, and I preach that morning. And usually, uh, you know, I shake everyone's hand, ask them their names, but usually I don't come back. Uh, you know, I, I'm thankful if I do, but, and I'm usually scrambling, trying to remember everybody's name, like, who are you, who are you, who are you? Uh, but I am thankful this morning to be able to proclaim God's word to people that I love, I admire, and I respect. So uh, that's what I'm thankful for this morning is that I am able to proclaim God's word to you, uh, people that I am, am a part of. So growing up in evangelical, Baptist, Southern Baptist uh, culture, I have come to see that we have an enormous emphasis on uh, personal evangelism and missions and uh, personal salvation through Christ. And praise God for that. I'm so thankful for that emphasis that, that we have as Baptists, as Southern Baptists, uh, and, and as a church here. Uh, but I am also mindful of the fact that that emphasis on, uh, on the personal salvation that we have in Jesus can give us a propensity, can give us a, a, the chance to have a little bit of a um, disemphasis or something else in the gospel. So to illustrate this, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you a garden variety gospel presentation. Uh, I'm just going to explain the gospel to you, and I want you to listen closely. And in your mind, I want you to think, is there anything in that, that presentation of the gospel that could be included to make that more robust? So here goes. The gospel is the good news of God's solution to sin. It begins with the bad news that we have all violated his law. 
And by violating his law that he's given to all of us, we have brought the punishment and the curse of the law upon us. And so as we have given this, uh, been given this curse of the law, we face eternal death. We face eternal separation from God and we face punishment for the sins that we have committed. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God has responded to our sin by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to live as a man, but he fulfilled the law perfectly in every respect. He fulfilled what the law required us to do, and he actually took the penalty for the law for breaking it. And so the good news of that is that God offers that perfect life of Jesus and the atoning death that he, uh, he procured for us by dying on the cross. He offers that to us by faith. And so faith unites us to God, and we are offered that uh, onto our account. And furthermore, Christ rose from the dead, and by raising from the dead, he guarantees us eternal life as well. So what do you think? Honestly, it's not a bad gospel presentation, I don't think. If someone came up to me on the street and they asked me the general message of Christianity, and I gave them that, uh, I wouldn't be disappointed in myself. Or if I asked you, you know, to, to summarize the gospel, and you said that to me, I would affirm that, and I would say, yes, I, I agree, that's a great presentation of the gospel. But I think what we could include to make that presentation more robust is a component where God deals with all of sin. So what I emphasized was that God deals with our personal sin through personal salvation in Jesus as an individual. What may happen if I emphasize that truth, that God has dealt with our sin as, as an individual, it still leaves sin out there, right? If the gospel is God's solution to sin, then it has to be a comprehensive, universal solution to sin. For him to save us as individuals is not to remove sin from the entire world, the, kernel, or the church is a kernel of Christ in the world. And as such, uh, we, we are saved from our sin in the world, but there is still sin in the world. The truth is that men and women uh, lie, cheat, steal, adulterate, kill, and hate every day. The truth is that even though Christ, praise God, has given us personal salvation and united us back to, back to God, that we are saved, but the, the world still has sin in it. But the gospel has a solution to this. It comes through God's kingdom and through his king. It comes through a perfect world of righteousness where, uh, where, where goodness reigns completely in every respect, where the world is restored to be what God created it to be where everything's made right and everything's made perfect through the rule of a perfect king. And this was a Jewish concept long before it was a Christian concept. You see, the, the Jewish people would have taken passages like the one we're reading today and others uh, before the time of Christ, and they would have anticipated one who would come. They called the Messiah. One who would come to do exactly as I've said, to set the world perfect, to eliminate human sin once and for all and to establish God's rule forever. And so to that, we turn to Psalm 2. 
As in Psalm 2, we see one of the clearest pictures of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Psalm 2 is a little bit of a drama. It's very dramatic. You know, we've got uh, bad guys, we've got good guys, and we've got conflict. And basically, it presents the idea of a Messiah in a narrative format. It's telling a story. And as such, there are basically four big movements in this passage, four big movements uh, that tell the story of the Messiah. The first is the rebellion of man. The second is the response of God. Third, the arrival of the true king. And finally, the clash of God and man. So this psalm begins with, a, uh, with introducing the antagonists the rebellious kings. We see the rebellion of man in verses one through three. To read those again, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the disposition of these kings is rebellion. They are rebelling against God. They are prideful, they are arrogant, and they have decided that the lot that they have been given in life is not quite enough. They need more. And so they, as verse 3 says, want to burst their bonds and cast away their cords. They want to get rid of their restrictions so they can be greater and so that they can be better. Uh, They want to grow beyond the limitations that God has placed upon them. This reminds me uh, of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where uh, the men and women of the earth decided that they wanted to to show their own ability, show their own worth, and so they decided to build a tower to God to show how godlike they are. Well, these kings exhibit the spirit of Babel as They want to show God how strong and powerful and mighty they are. They set themselves against God. It's the antagonist. You know, I kind of picture it like like a boxing ring, you know? You've got on one side of the corner, you've got the rebellious kings, you know? And they're setting themselves against God. So these are the bad guys of the passage. These are the antagonists. And how these kings are behaving is pretty natural. This is not just a story. Uh, This is, experience testifies to this. So I don't consider myself like a history guy, but I am the kind of guy who listens to history podcasts while I cut grass. So I, you'll forgive me if this passage calls to mind uh, all kinds of examples from history. The biggest one to me is, uh, I was on a big Roman history kick about a year, year and a half ago. I I mean a big one. Like, uh, that was was all the history that I really liked to do. I did, had to do a big, you know, senior paper in uh, in college, did that on Roman history. Uh, It it was was a big thing for me. But uh, one thing that you can note in Roman history is it reads like a soap opera. It does, I'm telling you. Every time, especially the Roman Empire, every time someone dies, there is a third nephew uh, who is rising up, putting an army together to defeat some general who has just got a faction of the army together uh, to slay the current Caesar. 
And uh, if you look through Roman history, it's just one assassination after the other. It's one coup after another. It's all of these different uh, characters and parts. Everybody is fighting and warring against one another. Why? Because they're not satisfied with their lot in life. They are prideful and arrogant and believe that they deserve more, whether it's because of birthright or because of some rank that they have uh, accumulated in life. I think about uh, American politics today. I'm pretty sure we have somewhere around 137 people uh, running for president in this next year. Um, you chuckle, but I wouldn't be surprised, really, if someone gave me that number, I'd be like, that sounds right, that sounds good. Because the truth is that everybody wants more power and everybody wants more authority than they've been given. Everyone wants to expand uh, beyond their lot in life. And so this passage to me is not just a story about some kings. It is telling us how human nature behaves with a crown. It is showing us sinful nature as these kings in pride and arrogance, oppose God. Because of this, it's easy for me to identify with these kings. It's easy for me to identify with them because of all the ways that I have failed and I've been prideful and arrogant towards the Lord. All of the times that I've demonstrated my, my own pride towards him. And truly, this is human nature. It's is not just the kings, it's not just me, but it's all of us as we rebel against God. And you may say to yourself, you may ask, well, how? How do we demonstrate such pride and arrogance and rebellion against God like these kings? Well, I could probably list a few ways, but I know of two, at least two ways that we demonstrate pride against God and rebellion, just like these kings. First would be that we demonstrate pride by breaking God's moral law. So God's law is his restriction on human behavior. I know we don't like to talk about it like that. We always have to give the caveat. I know that it's the law of liberty and that by obeying it, it's meant to set us free from our sin. But God's law is a limitation on human behavior. We can agree on that. And as such, we break it. We don't want to be limited by God. We don't want to have his moral law restricting and inhibiting the behaviors that we choose uh, to participate in. We do not like the fact that God has placed limitations on us, so we sin. That is essentially God's moral law. You boil it down, it's do not sin. But we choose sin anyway. And by doing so, we demonstrate that we have a way that is better than God's way. The limitations that he put on us are not enough, but like the kings, we have to burst those bonds, we have to burst those cords, and we have to go further than what God has given to us by sinning against him. So we demonstrate pride by breaking God's moral law, but we also demonstrate pride by engaging in self-reliance. Uh, a few weeks ago, Matthew preached on the passage from James 4 where he talked about uh, those hotshot merchants who were going to go around to this city and trade and make a profit, and we're going to go to the next city, we're going to set up a stand, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do some business there, probably make some good money there, we're going to go on. And the essential sin that James was addressing there was the idea of relying on yourself uh, without uh, inviting the presence of God, without participating in the presence of God uh, in your life. The truth is that we engage in this all the time. 
We participate in self-reliance constantly as, as we refuse to, to participate with the presence of God, but we just go through our life as if God didn't even exist. We engage in practical atheism as we live a life without God. And by doing that, we're demonstrating to God and to all the world that we don't need him. We're saying, God, I'm fine as I am. I've got it nailed down. I'm, uh, I'm hitting this. I'm going to bed every night. I'm waking up. Uh, I'm eating good food. Uh, I'm killing it at work. It's, it, we, we just believe that we don't need God by demonstrating that we are, we're fine and we live in self-reliance without, uh, without God present in our life. So ultimately, we see the rebellion of man. We see these kings rebel. And, and I hope that I've demonstrated that we can identify with these kings. It's not abstract. It's not out there. We come to this seeing these kings ourselves. So we see the rebellion of man in verses 1 through 3. And in verses 4 and 5, we see the response of God. Again, to read those again. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So we see that God has a general disposition towards the rebellion of these kings. He responds in a specific way. So he responds, one, with laughter, and two, with wrath. So first God responds in laughter. In verse 4, he sits in heaven and he laughs at the the rebellion of these kings. God is not concerned. His sovereignty is not threatened by the rebellion of man. God has never been shaken by the, uh, the, by the Tower of Babel all the way through, through uh, Revelation as we see the, the people uh, on earth gathering together to war against God. He is never concerned. He is never threatened. He sits in heaven and he laughs because he knows the means he'll use to accomplish his his will. And he knows that there is no threat to his rule and to his sovereignty. And this confidence of God and his his own sovereignty to the point where he laughs is antithetical to our own fear. It is opposite of our own fear that we have. Uh, If I can can be permitted another history illustration, in October of 1963, I better have that right because I've just bragged about listening to history podcasts. But uh, anyway, anyway, in October of 1963, uh, the world came to a halt as uh, American spy planes found Russian missiles uh, 90 miles off the coast of Florida in Cuba. And so the Americans set up a quarantine and uh, there was concern at this point, uh, obviously, when you have nuclear warheads uh, being put so close to your country. Of course, America had uh, the the same kind of missiles located pretty close to to Russia and Turkey. So there was deep concern uh, as the United States and the Soviet Union came to this standoff. And at this point, the American people, the Soviet Union citizens, were held in deep fear. Every night, families would huddle up around the TV to see if there were any new developments in this Cuban Missile Crisis, to see if anything else had gone on. They, they huddled around in fear, worrying about what would happen. Well, this fear is not the fear of God. 
He's not his. He is not fearful. He is confident and he laughs at human rebellion. You can gather every silo in the world, every nuclear warhead. You can gather every weapon and give it to the most skilled warriors we have on this planet. You can direct them all at God. And what is his response? He laughs. He is not challenged by the threat of human rebellion. So even though he's not challenged by the threat of human rebellion, he does take rebellion per se, rebellion itself. He does take it very seriously. So God responds with laughter, but he also responds with wrath in verse 5. I'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So God, again, does not, he's not fearful of the threat of human rebellion, but he does take human rebellion very seriously. He is very wrathful towards sin and rebellion. Uh, parents of toddlers can understand this concept very well. I'm not a parent of a toddler, but I've, I've seen it. I'm, uh, I'm well aware. I've, I've watched it happen numerous times. So say that the toddler, she goes and she's got some safety scissors. And it's like you can hear the record, you know, and it stops. And mom, she looks at the daughter. She's got those mom eyes on. And she's like, bring those to me right now. And the toddler looks at her, and she just goes, no. It's right in the eyes, no. And so at this point, the mother doesn't sit around, and she's, she's not worried. She's not like, oh, no. She's about to take me down with those safety scissors, you know. <laughs> There's no concern there, but she doesn't play. You know, she's moving. Uh, you know, the fastest land mammal is a mother closing in on a child has just told them no. And she goes in and she takes those safety scissors. She, she doesn't play, and she squashes that rebellion right there. Well, in the same way, God does not, uh, is not fearful, you know, just like the safety scissors. He's not worried that we're uh, going to bring him down with our rebellion, but nonetheless, he responds with wrath. That's not something we like to uh, conceive of God. We don't like to conceive of angry God. You know, we like to think of Jesus as um, calling the, the weary to him, as, as we'll sing later. We, we like to imagine Jesus as a shepherd taking a lamb over his shoulder. We, we like to imagine Jesus as, um, as giving his life on the, cro- on the cross for us. And so those are good, biblical, wonderful pictures of God, but uh, those are the ones we like. We don't usually most of us don't usually like uh, when we see Jesus breaking people with a rod of iron or smashing him like pottery. That's usually not, you know, like nursery room material. Um, That's not usually what we conceive of when we think of God, but it's true nonetheless. The testimony of this passage and the rest of scripture is that God is extremely wrathful towards sin. And you might ask at this point, why? Why is God so wrathful towards human sin? Why is he so wrathful towards rebellion? Well, one reason is that it challenges his rule. Again, I don't mean that it, you know, we're putting up a good fight and we might come out there, you know, and, and we're challenging him. No, I mean that we give direct opposition to his rule. He takes his rule and his reign very seriously. And like any good king, he will not allow a rebellion to fester but he will put down rebellion and he will respond in wrath. It's natural. But 
Also, he responds in wrath because our rebellion insults his character. So, as we said earlier, by rebelling against God, we are breaking his moral law. God's moral law is a declaration of his own character. So, God says, don't steal, because God is always a perfect steward of everything he has. He says, don't lie, because he is truth. So as God commands us to do, God is calling us to be what he is. And so when we break his moral law, we're declaring, God, I don't want to be like you. I remember uh, when I was younger, it was probably high school, uh, my mom was getting on to me for, being, for not working hard enough. It could have been hard enough in anything. It could have been school, work, sports even for a time. Uh, there was a lot of things that I didn't work hard in in high school, but uh, she was getting on to me about it. She was having a heart to heart. And she said to me, uh, that's not the way that your father and I raised you. We work hard every day. We go, uh, we go to work early, we, we come home, and then we do all these chores every night. We work hard every single day. And I would have been a pretty bad son at that point if I had just looked at her and like, well, I don't want to be like you anyway. I'm just going to keep being lazy. But that is effectively what we are declaring when we violate God's moral law. We're saying, God, not only am I going to break the restrictions you've given to me, but I don't want to be like you. I want to be different. I want to be and go in my own way. And so that elicits God's wrath. And so as God's wrath is kindled against sin, against the sin of the world, against the rebellion of these kings, he must do something about it. And so how does God respond to this? How does he solve the problem of this human sin, the rebellion of these kings? Well, here we see the arrival of the true king. God responds to the rebellion of these kings with a king, with his king. In verse 6, it says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And at this point, as we're reading through the passage, especially if you know, we don't have the capitalization to help us and stuff, we may think that God is just referring to a you know, regular old plain Davidic king. You know, he's talking about uh, any other that he has set on his throne. And truly, there are some dimensions where, where this is truthful, as a truthful interpretation of this. Uh, but we see that it's not just a plain old king. You know, it's not just a plain old uh, Davidic king that God is talking about setting on his holy hill. When we read verses 7 through 9, verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So there is something fundamentally different about this king than all the others. There is, that's not the same language that God uses to describe uh, all of the kings that reign in the Old Testament is meant to actually point us towards a covenant that was made between God and David. In 2 Samuel 7 and verse 8, we see what's commonly referred to as the Davidic covenant, a covenant made between God and his servant David. In 2 Samuel 7, beginning verse 8, it says, Now therefore, thus you, you being Nathan, shall say to my servant David, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so, as the Jews would have read this passage and, and compared that with Psalm 2, uh, it's obviously what they would have had in mind, is this covenant that God made with David, as it talks about, uh, you know, the son that, that God would have, you know, he will be to me as a son. And, and it talks about, uh, you know, reigning forever. And in some sense, this uh, covenant in David, this promise was fulfilled in Solomon. You know, it, it sounds like Solomon, and uh, there, there's some truth to that. But God promises a kingdom forever, you know, to David. You talk about uh, trying to get your forever home. Well, uh, God promises a forever kingdom to David. And uh, we know that that was not given to Solomon. Solomon is not still reigning today. Uh, he, is, he is gone. He took Israel to great heights, but now he's gone. So obviously this covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is meant to point us to someone who would come later, is meant to point us to a Messiah. Psalm 2 is meant to point us to a Messiah, to a king who would reign. And we, as Christians, believe that that Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ. We believe that he is the one that the scriptures foretold. We believe that he is the one in 2 Samuel 7, in Psalm 2, and many other passages that testify to the Messiah who would come. So, as we look through the characteristics of the Messiah in this passage, we're about to do, I want to bring out the, the characteristics of the Messiah, but I also want to identify how those characteristics, that role, that messianic role is fulfilled in Jesus. So who is the Messiah of Psalm 2? First, we can say clearly that the Messiah is sent by God. This Messiah of Psalm 2 is given a definite mission from God. He's sent from God for a reason, to accomplish what he has called him to do. He has called him to rid the world of sin and to establish God's kingdom forever. And so, 
that concept of the, the being sent by God is something that was ever present in the ministry of Jesus. When you look through the New Testament, you could begin early in the book of Luke as, as Jesus' parents come to him and, uh, and he's in the temple and he's, he's teaching and they, you're like, what are you doing? And Jesus responds and says, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? And then, you know, you proceed from there throughout the rest of the narrative of Jesus' life, and he is constantly aware of the fact that God has sent him to accomplish something. God has purposed him. He has sent him out to accomplish his will. So we see that the Messiah is sent by God, as Christ is sent by God to accomplish his will. We see also that the Messiah is the Son of God. In verse 7, it says, uh, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this is one of the, the key ways that this Messiah is different from these other Davidic kings. He has a special and intimate relationship with God that's characterized by father and son, that he has, uh, he has a special kind of relationship that goes beyond all of the others. He has an intimate relationship with God. He is his son. And this, of course, is the most key link uh, between this Messiah of Psalm 2 and Jesus in the New Testament. Because Jesus' testimony again and 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 again is, I am the son of God. He refers to himself as the son of God frequently throughout the Gospels. He also refers to God as Father again and again and again and again and again and again. We see clearly that Jesus uh, is the Son of God, that he uh, understands God as his Father. But we as Christians, uh, we here, we don't simply believe that uh, Jesus is, he fulfills like the title of Son of God. Or that it is merely an analogy to describe uh, his relationship with the Father. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and we believe he's God of God, that he is fully God, that he is uh, himself uh, a member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, that he is fully God. And as such, he comes to do what only God can do. He comes to set the world right, to rid the world of this evil. So the Messiah is sent by God. The Messiah is the Son of God. And last we see that the Messiah is a mighty and powerful king. In verses 8 and 9, it says, Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So since the Messiah is the son of God, he's given an inheritance, and it's a pretty good one. It's very sizable. It's a godly inheritance. Being the son of God, he has given the entire earth. He's given the nations, the ends of the earth, as a possession, as an inheritance for this son of God. And so as such, he reigns over the earth as a mighty king, and he is Powerful. It says that they will, he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel to demonstrate that this king is powerful, that this king is able to reign over the whole earth. And as we know, this is identified to be Jesus later. 
Uh, we can see clearly in, in Revelation 19 that there are some callbacks to this passage in, uh, in Psalm 2. Revelation 19, you actually may want to turn there. Uh, this, again, is a wonderful passage that demonstrates the power of Jesus. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, uh, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with, an, with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when we see this great, mighty, and powerful king of Psalm 2, it is pressing us to look forward to Christ and his rule and return in Revelation as he returns to the earth, it says that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Obviously meant to be a, a callback to uh, this rule of, of Christ in Psalm 2, this rule of the Messiah with the iron rod. And that he'll rule over the nations that this one, Christ who would come, would be king of kings and lord of lords. We believe that Christ is the Messiah of Psalm 2. And as such, he is coming to set the world as it should be. He's coming to rid the world of evil. When we talk about our gospel, the good news that God has solved the problem of sin, we have a complete solution in Christ. As he comes, as the Messiah to reign, to rule, and to set the world right as it should be. And so... As such, as Christ is coming to rid the world of sin, uh, the truth is that that means he comes to oppose sinners. And so we come back to Psalm 2, and to these kings, and to the rebellion, and to God's response and to his true king. And we come to the climax of this. We come to the clash. Just like in any movie, in any story, you have the villains, they oppose the hero, and you have the clash here at the end as these kings meet God. But maybe I'm overhyping it a little bit because there's not much of a battle here. If you are reading this and you're following along to the story of the kings and to uh, the story of God's response, you may get to this point and be expecting you know, there to be a, a violent and bloody battle, but there's not. That's not what happens. You get to the end of this, and there's a warning. A warning to the kings. And it says, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's a surprising ending. I would call that a twist. We get to the end of this, 
And what's become clear is that as God laughs against this rebellion, that there's no real rebellion. That there's not a contest here. We're not waiting to see how this is going to turn out. As we see in, in Revelation 19, as we see this glorious picture of Christ returning in power, we know that there is not a war to be fought. That it is over as God says it's over because he is a great and mighty, powerful king. And so, basically, these kings are just told to get smart. And they're given a decision. They can continue in their rebellion. And and they, they face destruction. Or they can cease and desist. Continue in rebellion or cease and desist. That's it. They're given a choice between rebellion or submission. That's their choice. And as well, we're given the same. If we're truly identifying with these kings, we're identifying with, with how it goes forth, we are giving a choice. Two choices. Rebellion or submission. That's what it comes down to. It's honestly refreshing. We live in a world that's flooded with choices. You know, I, I can leave here, and if I need to go by Walmart to get some toothpaste, I will have 36 different toothpastes to choose from, you know? Uh, but here it's really that simple. Rebellion or submission. As we look in through the Jewish you know, wisdom literature, we see that all the time. You, know, you have foolishness and wisdom. You have righteousness and wickedness. And so we come to the end of this and we, we're given a choice. Rebellion or submission. And it's a little bit more severe of a choice than Colgate or Oral-B. It's a little bit more existential. We're put between two very different and very severe paths. Because on the one hand, if we continue in our rebellion, then we face the prospect of destruction. Here it says, to serve the Lord with fear, rejoice and trembling, and kiss the Son. Why? Lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, in the path, in the way that you've chosen to go. For his wrath is quickly kindled. And ultimately, our rebellion leads to destruction. So for us to continue in rebellion is foolishness because we will be met with, with the, the authoritative boot of Christ as he comes to stamp out sin from the world. We must not continue in rebellion, but instead choose submission. Choose to submit to Christ and choose to live in him. You know, this, this last word here, this last sentence, is the most surprising of the whole passage to me. Because you look through this, and, and these kings, they're rebelling, and they're fighting against God, and they're warring against him, and he, he laughs at them, and then he's angry. And then you have the true king coming in, and he's breaking people with a rod of iron and smashing them like pottery. And then you get to the end of this, and it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. What a surprise. Why? Why is, is God giving such mercy to these rebels? Well, this is why we need a concept of Christ reigning over all in our gospel. Because the kingdom that Christ is coming to inaugurate will be one that's perfect. But the good news, the greatest evidence of God's grace and God's mercy is that those in the kingdom will be former rebels means that you and I, who have rebelled against God, against his way, and violated his law, we have the opportunity to take refuge in the very same one we oppose. 
The kingdom of God will be filled with people lifting in hands with praise, the same hands that were clenched in angry rebellion against him. The good news of the kingdom of God is that there is room for you and me who have violated his law within that kingdom. So, what I want to say is this. Christ is the true king. He is the Messiah. And we have come to his kingdom to take refuge, to take shelter in him. Before I go, I want to leave you with one word of application. I don't want to leave here with just, I've told you a good story about this and, and to you know, press you to consider, consider this. I want to give you one word of application. And there's a lot of ways that we could go with such a passage and application. But I want to keep it simple. Here's the application. Live in obedience and await the return of Christ. It's that simple. This decision between rebellion and submission is not just some big existential question. This week, you will be faced with a choice of whether you are going to uh, disobey God or whether you're going to obey him. Whether you're going to be in rebellion or whether you're going to be in submission. So I pray that you would remember this passage, that you remember the reign of Christ and submit yourself to him and live in obedience to him. Also, I just want to say, await the return of Christ. As we go through this life, we deal with the sin of others. We deal with the consequences of our own sin. We deal with tragedy left and right as uh, all creation groans for completion. And as we endure these tragedies, there is hope as we await the return of Christ. So it's that simple. As we come to this and we see Christ reigning in power, my word to you as church, let's, this week, let's live in obedience and await the return of Christ together. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the great truth of redemption in Jesus. I thank you that you have saved me, Avery, from my sins. I thank you that you saved all of us from our sins. And I thank you that you're coming back to complete the salvation of the world, that you are coming back to set right what has long been wrong, that you're coming back to turn things back to what you created them to be. I thank you for that truth. I pray that this week we would live in obedience to you, that we would see your great and powerful, wonderful reign, and that we would live in obedience to you. And that we would await the return of Christ, knowing that we take refuge in him. And as we await his return, I pray that we would uh, do so eagerly, uh, praying earnestly that you would come, Lord, and complete what you have begun. Lord, we thank you for your reign. We thank you for uh, your reign over, over even this earth. And we pray for the one to come. We thank you for all of this. And we pray for it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.